Amen. So thankful for the Word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's uh, able to teach uh, even the most unteachable person. It's able to give knowledge to the person who thinks that they cannot learn. Uh, the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God as His means of speaking to us, and I would even say through us today, uh, not only when our life is a testimony of the Word of God, but also when we proclaim the Word of God with our mouths. I'm so thankful for this Word, maybe a little too thankful, because as I was preparing this next big section, um, I just got sort of into it a little deeper before I actually got into the sermon. So today, um, and I might have messed up, we're going to do Romans 12.1. And then um, next week we're going to do Romans 12.1 and 2. And I've never done that before and hopefully I don't mess it up. So hopefully you can, uh, you can follow along with me. Uh, I think today will be shorter because maybe, usually when I say that it goes an hour long. But uh, it'll be shorter because I was just... At the crux of one sermon and two sermons. So it's going to be two sermons. Uh, I guess that's more of a warning than anything. Um, but we, we, it's a new section in Romans uh, altogether. And I, I think it's deeply important that we, um, we stop here and we see... Because Paul is setting this up. He's, he, although Paul wouldn't have written on a piece of you know, manuscript or whatever, he wouldn't have written um, Romans 12, verse 1. He would have, he's a brilliant teacher, so he would have definitely had breaks and thought breaks and, and moment breaks and where he would have kind of gone back around to the beginning in sections of, of his letter. And so that's why it was so easily easy to divide for the early, uh, early, for the early church because he's just a brilliant teacher. And so... I think this is one of those moments where we need to stop and sort of see where we've been and, and where we're going. So Romans 12, 1 is where we're going to be today. And I've titled this one, and I'll title next one, Reasonable Worship. Reasonable Worship from Romans 12, 1 and 2. We come to this new study in Romans, and to this point, we have been loaded down deeply in theology. It has been heavy theology. We have been inundated with the character of God, His eternal will and purpose, His sovereignty, His eternal existence, His perfection, and whatever ones that stuck out to you the most, the, the list goes on. We have been inundated with the character and nature and the operation of God. We were blessed immensely to see how He justifies us uh, when we were um, seemingly unjustifiable. How through the blood of Jesus He has purchased us with a price. And we've seen all of the beautiful ramifications that come of that. You know, the fact that we were depraved and dead and without hope. And even so vile, we were, we were participatory in this, if not actively, passively. Even... We were so vile that uh, we were inventing new ways of sinning. 
and, um, and God being rich in mercy. Because of His love and His kindness, He, he stepped out of heaven to save us. We have, we have learned some deep theological things. And I, I want, if anything, I want us to see today before we start that our theology is the foundation of practical Christian living. Our theology has never, it is never, it can never be separated from practical Christian living. There is not, there is no such thing as a theological Christian who is not practice, a practicing Christian. And I would like to say on the opposite end of that, there is no such thing as a practicing Christian who is not a theologian. They don't exist. If you are not a theologian or pursuing the, the desire to be a theologian, you are pursuing disobedience. That's just the way it is. If you are a theologian not, produce, not pursuing the practice of righteousness, uh, you are not just missing the mark in some ways. You're being disobedient. Um, and so I think Paul is trying to tell us in all of Romans, but specifically with this break, the necessity of theology in our practice and the necessity of practice in our theology. Uh, he does this, I believe, by using this therefore. And so if you've been here before or heard any preacher, you would know or any preacher worth his weight, you would know that if there's a therefore, you have to see what the therefore is there for. You have to figure out why it's there. And typically when we see therefore, it points back to the previous passage or the previous thought. But what I think is happening here in Romans 12 is Paul is pointing back to all of his letter at this point. He is pointing back to Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3, all the way through verses 11. He is pointing back to everything that we have read uh, to this point. So we have to look and see why the therefore is there. And here's why I think it is, and I've alluded to this already. I think Paul is saying, here is why you do it, Romans 1 through 11. Here is how you do it, Romans 12 through 16. Here is why you do it, Romans 1 through 11. Here is how you do it, Romans 12 through 16. It is orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Often we get orthodoxy right. Orthodoxy is the right praise. It is uh, the right understanding of God. But sometimes we miss orthopraxy. That is the right practice. The right response. And Paul here is saying that the two are inextricably connected. They cannot be separated. You cannot have one without the other. Now, I know I've already said that. That's my first time to repeat it. Expect it a few more times today. Expect the repetition of that idea that you can't have theology without practice and you can't have practice without theology. This is why Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, therefore, brothers, he's urging us based on all that we know in Romans 1 through 11. Now, Jesus loves me, this I know, is a great start in life. It's a great start in your Christian life. 
But Jesus loves me, this I know, does not give all of the answers for life. One of the main reasons that the thought, Jesus loves me, this I know, does not give all the answers for life is because, and I'm going to use this word, and I'm sorry if you're, if you're not happy with it, the word love has been so bastardized that we don't know what it actually means hardly anymore without really discovering the character and nature of God. So Jesus loves me, this I know. For some people, the only love they've known is sexual love, and it's been not good. For some people, the only love they've known is love that has faded or eventually abandoned them, and that is not good. So knowing that God loves us is vastly important, but that's only the start. We can't finish with what that God loves us. We can't finish with Jesus loves me, this I know. We have to finish with what does that mean? What does love mean? Friends, I want you to know if Paul's encouraging us to do anything in all of Romans, but especially here in Romans 12, he is encouraging us to deeply examine and dive into the character and nature of God so that when we speak of him in a positive light, we and everyone around us will know what that means. Jesus loves me. This I know only gets you a certain Distance, And it's unfortunate that so many churches are focused only and simply on the love of Jesus in a world where the terms and the stipulations for such have been exploited, have been abused. So many churches focus just on what. Love is and not actually what are are the love of Jesus and not actually what that means. Jesus loves me. This I know. Well, my father said he loved me, but he beat me and then he left me. My father said he loved me, but then he was verbally abusive to me. As the enemy works, if all we know is Jesus loves me, this I know we will begin to suspect that we may be abandonable also. That we may be worthy of degradation also. Using generic terms about God that the world has redefined will never help us build a trust that is required to maintain a walk with God. Jesus loves me, this I know, will not help us understand why we do what we do on Sunday mornings. Or why our church is set up in a different way than other churches. Jesus loves me. This I know will only be a part of what we need to hear when our spouse is dying. Or when we found out that we don't have very long to live. Jesus loves me. This I know will uh, will not be the full um, necessity of what we need when we're burying a child. Or a parent. It won't help the person who has been churched their entire life. And still has doubt about their faith. Thinking that God could abandon them like their father or their mother or their family did. It won't help them to have trust and confidence. Jesus loves me just I know is important. But it is just a start. 
It is a wonderful truth. But we must have theology to back it up. We must have the nature and the character of God to back it up. So that when we know, when we know what love means, we know that it is a love unlike anything we've ever experienced or really even been able to define. We can't just know biblical terms like love and kindness and good and power. But we must define them specifically and thoroughly as it pertains to God. I have two John Calvin quotes today, so don't get uh, up in arms if the word Calvin uh, gets you a little bit, okay? Um, He was still a good godly theologian. John Calvin in the 8th chapter of his 1541 Institutes said this, so it is as wonderful, so it is a wonderful comfort to understand that the Lord holds all things in his power, governs them by his will, and regulates them by his wisdom in such a way that nothing can happen unless he has destined it. Moreover, he has received unto us into his protection and committed us to the charge of his angels, so that there is no water or fire or sword or anything that can harm us except inasmuch as his good pleasure allows. From where does the faithful person get such an assurance which can never be taken away except that there where there where it seems that the world is capriciously turned upside down he believes that God is working to lead him God whose works he expects are all salvific and wholesome for him See it's not just Jesus loves me this I know it is the God of the universe who has perfectly worked out His will and His plan for our good is working in us even in the death of a loved one. Even in the trials of life. Even in the misunderstandings and misgivings of our own mind. Every situation in life is perfectly handled by the Lord. And then the more we know about Him, we develop an even greater confidence in Him. Peace because of that knowledge. Joy for a new day. Love to share with others who are hurting and longing. Friends, we cannot develop the trust that is necessary to follow God to the end unless we develop a full theological understanding of the God of the universe. We cannot practice in righteousness Unless we develop a full theological understanding of the God of the universe. You might hear me preach and you might say, that's good theology. Give me something practical. Okay, I'll just repeat what I just said and there you go. There you have it. Now I think there is room for application and I think there is room for practical preaching. uh, But I think the most practical thing we can do is know as fully as we possibly can about God and then respond based on what we know. So ten minutes later, we'll jump right into the text. Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual Worship. There's two things I want you to see over the next two weeks. And the first is this. The service, service to God is the most reasonable work for a Christian. Service to God is the most reasonable work for a Christian. Present 
your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Which is your spiritual worship. Which is your, if you want to do some synonyms, which is your spiritual service. Which is your spiritual action. And we're going to find out, and I'm going to do a spoiler alert because it's in my mind now and I have to do it. Uh, spiritual worship here means reasonable, logical. Present your bodies to God in action is the most log logical and reasonable thing that a Christian can do. We are presented today with a paradox used to show how we respond to theology. How we respond to the theology we know. Paul says, therefore, he says, in light of all we know about God, the only reasonable solution would be to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Do you realize how weird those two words together are? Right? A living sacrifice. What is the only sure thing that will happen to a sacrifice? You die. And yet Paul says, in light about what we know about God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It seems to contradict each other. That's, by the way, if you don't know what paradox is, that's exactly what a paradox is. It is a statement that seems contradicting in nature, but is in fact true. Now we have several of those, just for example. The Trinity is a paradox of sorts, right? He's the Father, He's the Son, He's the Spirit. He's three, but He's in one. Another paradox. God is completely sovereign, and yet free will exists. It's a paradox. It's things that because of our limited knowledge, our limited understanding of God, He reveals to us in a way that we can understand in part, but we can't understand it completely. It does not make it untrue. It just makes God better than us. And He knows it. So what is the paradox here? Paul says, you are to present your bodies as a living Sacrifice. The paradox really is not just living sacrifice. The paradox is this. We must die to live. We must die to live. Sacrifices, you've already said it, usually die to die. We must die to live. Death to live. It's not that uncommon to hear for us, right? We've heard this before. But it's deeply important that we understand it. Death to to live. Luke 9, 23-24 says, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, you've heard it before, so you can, you can quote him with me. What, what must he do? He must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life, it's a paradox, whoever would save his life would lose it. If you try to preserve it, you lose it. But whoever would give his life away will what? Save it. Save it. The first principle then that every Christian should understand after we take this fire hydrant in of the goodness and the nature of God is that if we want to follow Him, we must lose our lives. We must offer ourselves as a sacrificial offering. I want to present to you two defining thoughts under this idea that, it, that this sacrifice, this service to God is the most reasonable act for a Christian. I want to present to you two sort of defining ideas. The first is this. 
this service is motivated by mercy. It is motivated by mercy. Our work is motivated by mercy. Paul says, I appeal to you to present your body as a living sacrifice. He doesn't say by good effort. He doesn't say by strong will. He doesn't say by determination. He says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to, pre to present your body as a living sacrifice. Paul, at the very beginning of this largely practical section on Christian living, wants us to motivate us to get the first thing we get here correct. And that is that our motivation for godly living is the deep, rich, endless fountain of the mercy of God. And how often we have to ask ourselves, do we find ourselves being motivated by the mercy of God? And yet Paul says it is the first and foremost motivation for the believer. What do we choose instead? What is our motivation for moral living? Typically, it is some reward. If I do this, I get this. That's a very immature thing to do. My children do that. Your children do that. Hopefully, it's something that we get past in life. But often, we don't. It is based on some reward. Or it is based on uh, whether our neighbor might see what we're doing or even our family might see what we're doing and think that we have a higher moral ethic or a higher standard of living. Even if the reward for moral living is to get your wife or your husband off your back. It should be probably way down the list and nowhere near what Paul says is our primary motivation. And that is the mercies of God. Many people live moral lives because they're scared of being in trouble. I will tell you, I would like to think that I spent most of my young, young teenage and childhood life being a moral person because I was motivated by the mercies of God. It was probably just because I was afraid of trouble. But I know that this is going to be very hard to believe, but it's true. And if you know me, you know this about me. Uh, I'm a rule follower. I, have, I know it's hard to believe. I, I, I can put together IKEA furniture because I follow instructions. Okay? I use maps. Well, Google Maps now. But I would use maps if they had paper maps. I'm a rule follower. And I spent much of my life as a primary motivation, much of my early life at least, now that I'm getting older, I spent the second half of my life so far, so that's weird to say, but, um, but much of my early life I spent motivated by discipline. What is it that motivates you to live a moral life? Even if it's just knowing that morality is good and it's right and it'll give you the best and most desired result. This is not what Paul puts at the forefront of our motivation for doing good. He says, 
I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You know, one thing I'm learning the older I get, that old age and unwillingness to do something bad also doesn't equal sanctification. You may be older in here and the only thing that's keeping you from doing something ungodly is that your body won't allow it anymore. That doesn't equal sanctification though, okay? I find myself seeing people do dumb stuff and thinking, man, I used to could do that. I don't have the energy to do that any longer. That's not sanctification though. That's not being motivated by the mercies of God. If you're older and your body doesn't work like it, like it used to, that's not sanctification. That's just breaking downification or whatever. Right? Sanctification, growing in Christ, is being motivated by what God has done by delving out His rich mercy upon us. For many Christians, good works become nothing more than fire insurance, a crutch, or just the respectable thing to do. I'm not saying these things shouldn't always motivate us, right? Or they shouldn't be a motivation at all. Like, I'm not going to jump off of a ladder now because I'm old, right? I might have done that when I was younger. It's a good motivation. It's also not wise. That's a better motivation, right? We can be motivated by these things, but our primary motivation should be the mercies of God. John Calvin, twice today, said that this is this of this verse. Paul's entreaty teaches us that men will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear or obey Him with sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to His mercy. This is why I've told you countless times that we must have a healthy view of ourselves before God and our neediness and what God has done for us. Mercy is the part of God's grace that goes out to the pitiful, that goes out to the desperate, that goes out to the needy. Mercy presupposes sin, meaning that mercy was given with our sin and our helplessness in mind. Mercy was not given by God thinking, oh, you know, Blake is less helpless than the other people, so I'll just give him a little bit of mercy. This person is unhelpable. Nobody in here, of course. But God being rich in mercy, presupposing sin, presupposing helplessness, gave us mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Ephesians 2 heralds this thought perfectly. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, 
being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with him, with Christ, by grace. You have been saved. Paul says, I appeal to you. I urge you. I beseech you. I plead with you. I I beg you. He is trying to ignite a fire in their heart that pursues the mercy of God and no other source, no other fountain of motivation for good works, no other fountain of motivation for Christian living, but the work of God in our lives. The mercies of God and nothing else. Not what God can do for us. Not fire insurance. Not emotional comfort. Not old age. But the mercies of God. What is he appealing to? He's appealing to them that they present their bodies. And another little underlying help for us is this worship. This worship, excuse me, is not just motivated by mercy, but it is sacrificial worship. He says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Where should mercy lead us? Mercy mercy should not lead us to confidence necessarily in ourselves. Mercy should not lead us to any other thing but sacrifice. But to death. But to emulate what Christ has done for us. But the problem is, in our flesh and in this culture, sacrifice is like not even on the list of goals to attain. Paul said the first goal after you realize the mercy of God is to sacrifice. It should not be on the, in this, according to this world, it should not be on the list of things we should attain. We are in the um, attaining culture. We are in the acquiring culture, not the giving culture. We are in a culture that says, get what you can, while you can, off of anybody, and in any way possible. And Paul says, by the mercies of God, sacrifice everything to follow the Lord. I want to tell you something that's vastly important today, friends. This sacrifice is not important because it's your life. This sacrifice is important because it's God's life in you. The reason we sacrifice our life is because He has given us Jesus and then He says, just give me back what I've already given you. It's not great imagery, but the gift we give is the blood-soaked cross. It is our life covered in the blood of Jesus. And that is why the sacrifice is not just a futile sacrifice, but it is an acceptable sacrifice. Paul says, I beseech you by the mercies of God to sacrifice. Friends, I want to tell you, if your faith is not costing you anything, it is not walking in a manner that Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and God has described in His Word. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Sacrifice. Give up of yourself. And then on 7.23, he goes on to say, You were bought with a price. Do not be bondservants of men. 
Sacrifice. Give up to God what He has already given to you. It is the most reasonable act for anyone who has been changed by the mercies of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, Knowing that you were, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Our lives are really the weirdest commercial transaction ever. Our lives, friends, are for sale, and they are for sale to the highest bidder. Whether that be personal ambition, some level of fame, wealth, power, lust, or any other worldly thing. All of those things are vying to possess us. And you have Jesus. And He says, for all of those who belong to Him, He says, this is Mine. And the purchase price is His blood. All of those things are vying for us. Still, friends, even though we are a new creation, even though we are new life, they are scorned because they did not win and Jesus wins and they will still fight for our lives until the day that we die. All of those things chasing after us while the blood of Christ covers us. Here is to me why this transaction is so weird. And this is the way my mind went when I think about this. It's like Jesus buying a run down, broken down house to flip. And he paid full market value. He paid his blood. The greatest price that he could pay. Full market value for a house that was run down. And instead of count, like trying to recoup some of his losses and just selling it like it was, he tears it down and starts over and makes a new creation out of it. And because it is done through His work and His mercy and His blood, the value of that house is infinitely greater than anything that the previous owner could have built himself. But nobody in this world buys a rundown house at full market value and tears it down and builds it back up again because there's nothing to profit from that. But God, but God being rich in mercy, being rich in mercy, created the weirdest transaction possible and it is of great benefit to us. Through Christ, the gift is then this, if we're going to carry that illustration out, and I hope it doesn't fall apart here. The gift is not that we settle in that house and we're just like, man, what a nice house. What a good house. I have AC, I have a new roof, I'm comfortable. I don't have to worry about roof rats or mice or whatever other thing a flipper might uh, courageously face on a regular basis. <laughs> The right thing to do is to say, this is your house. It was the work from the foundation and up. And I'm not just going to live here. I'm going to put this thing on the MLS. 
I'm going to let people know about it. I'm going to take pictures. And I'm going to take care of it until I'm with you again. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. When Christ resides in us by His grace and mercy, He has given us a house unlike any other. And He expects. It's reasonable to expect, is what Paul says. It's logical to expect us to do the same. Through Christ, we must sacrifice in order to live. What is this sacrifice? We're going we're gonna to develop this a little bit more next week. But Paul says, our bodies, this is not some sort of like transcendent thing that we can't understand. This is what Paul means. Salvation is spiritual and physical. It is spiritual in the sense that you are saved only by the miraculous work of Jesus. And it is physical in the sense that if you are saved by Jesus, you will see definitive physical responses. Paul is literally saying, give your body also. Give your physical body also. Give your life. He is literally appealing to Christians to give up every part of themselves to God. And not that you will do that perfectly every day, but that you will not relent until the day of Christ. Right? Paul says, Paul says, not that I'm perfect. Y'all would have hated Paul. Not that I'm perfect, but I am going to pursue perfection until the day of Christ. The most obvious way of this, I think, is repenting. Waking up with a repentive spirit, a change of mind. I'm not going to live yesterday. I'm not going to live the day like I did yesterday. I'm going to do better. A turning from sin. Because sin can control our bodies. But our bodies, because we are in the Spirit of God, do not have to be controlled by sin. If our bodies are instruments of the Holy Spirit, then He has control over how things go. So instead of our bodies being used as tools of sin, they can be used as tools for life. Physical action that is a spiritual response of what God has done. I didn't exactly know where to stop this, so um, this is sort of the end. But I want to give you this before we go. I think it's too much text for this week, but... I think we'll be able to, I hope I'll be able to pull it all together next week. If not, just pretend like you didn't hear the sermon. I know. I'm sad too. I want to give you two thoughts to finish verse 1. These these thoughts specifically pertain to the offering of your body as a living sacrifice. These are not up on the screen, so don't go to the next uh, slide. This surrender is to be holy and acceptable Unto God. It is to be holy and acceptable unto God. Here's how, friends. We have Jesus. His blood has changed us. His mercies renew us every day. And because of that, we can walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And our lives are consecrated, they're set apart, they're acceptable. 
But also, just this. They're holy and acceptable just because we have Jesus. If He is in our life, if He is the Lord of our life, if He is the Lord of our heart, He is enough. And our offerings are deemed acceptable and holy because of Him. What does that tell you, friends? That tells you that your feeble attempts are a sweet aroma to the Lord. Your feeble attempts at worship are not something that you should look at and say, man, if I only could do it like so-and-so, or I just missed the mark. Your feeble attempts are holy and acceptable because you are holy and acceptable in Jesus. The greatest things that you could ever possibly do are not a more sweeter are not a more sweet smelling aroma than the lesser things that you do in the spirit of God to the glory of the Lord. Our offerings are holy and acceptable because we are being sanctified because of the mercies of God. It is the appeal of the mercy of God. It is the appeal to be sanctified, to give ourselves as a living sacrifice, but also just because Jesus is in us. And everything that happened in Romans 1 through 11 is true. But also because it's reasonable. It's reasonable. Paul, the, the word literally is, I'm, I'm going to say it. I'm going to read it because I think it would help us for me to read it and not just abuse it. The word is logikos. What word does that sound like? Logical. Logic. When you think of something as logical, you think of like, this is the natural thing to do. This is logical. What I don't understand why you don't get that. This is logical. Paul is saying, listen, if somebody's willing to, to buy your dilapidated self, to tear you down and build you up into something that is greater than you could ever formulate for yourself. And he's willing to give that to you as a gift so that you can then live your life in a way that is much more in exponentially, infinitely more elevated than you could ever develop. The most logical thing to do would be so grateful that you're like, look, I can't take this. This is too good for me. This is yours. Take it back. Not in the, not in the false humble sense, but in the sense that I am not worthy of this. There should be a constant, this may be dumbing it down too, too low, but there should be a constant battle between you and Jesus like, no, this is your life. I'm giving it to you now. No, Jesus, this is your life. No, this is your life. This is... I don't, I don't want to be irreverent. I'm not trying to be irreverent. But I'm trying to give you that image of just, we need to be giving it back and He gives it back to us. And we need to be giving it back and He gives it back to us. Because it is the only logical thing for us to do. It's reasonable. It's logical. Is He not worthy of the best? With what He promises in us. With all that He has done. And all that we possess in Him. Is there anything more logical to do than to give our lives as a living sacrifice? Holy and acceptable 
unto Him? With the promises He's made and the promises He's kept, is there anything more logical to do than to give our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto Him? Is He worthy of our best? An offering of our lives redeemed and covered by the blood of Jesus Christ is the best we can possibly do. And He is worthy. He is worthy. But friends, it takes sacrifice. It takes sacrifice. We should really examine ourselves today. That's why sharing the gospel is hard. Because it takes sacrifice to do the things of God. That's why denying ourselves, fleeing temptation, running to the Lord, that's why those things are difficult. Because it takes sacrifice to follow God. That's why working out a marriage that is not perfect, that is why raising children that are little brats is, is, is hard. Because we and we must endure because it takes sacrifice to do what the Lord has commanded, what the Lord requires. But he's worthy. And it is worth it. It is worth it. God, thank you for all that you've taught us in this first half of Romans. Thank you of your worthiness. Lord, that I would be motivated by the mercies of God to present my life as a living sacrifice every day. That I may be found holy and acceptable. And that on the last day when every man meets his maker. You would say to me. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Oh God, work in us in a way unlike you have done before. Remove any hindrance from ourselves that prevents you from using the fullness of your power where we lock you out of our lives. Search our hearts for sin that binds us to an old life, a dead life. And help us by the mercies of God to present our lives as a living sacrifice. That we may be holy and acceptable unto you. Lord, we love you. We praise you in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.